0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org.
1: Good morning and welcome to Providence. We're so glad that you're with us this morning. If this is your first time at Providence, we want to especially welcome you. We hope that you felt welcomed and loved when you walked through the doors this morning. My name is Lauren Schreiber and I serve at Providence as the director of the Providence Road Academy. And again, we are so glad that you've chosen to gather with us this morning. Um, Providence is a group of people formed around a simple vision to make the gospel unignorable in our city. And so one of the ways that we always commit to do that is that when we gather together on a Sunday morning, we are going to open our Bibles together uh, because we believe that the word of God was given to us that we might know, worship, and obey Jesus. And so we are currently in a series for Advent called Tis the Season where we are talking um, about the peace, love, hope, and joy available to us because of the birth of Christ Um, and reminded of in the Advent season. And so this morning, we're going to read it uh, from Luke chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. Um, If you don't have a hard copy of the Bible with you, but you'd prefer to be in one, we do have um, some Bibles under the seat, so just search around and grab one. And if you don't own a Bible uh, at home, you're welcome to take that one as a gift from us. So again, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, reading verses 8 through 14. When you get there, if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read God's word together? And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
0: Sorry, Grant, that was my fault. That was not your fault. Um. Well, it's good to see each and every one of you. My name is Ty Gaston. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church. And before we get started, I do have uh, a few announcements that I want to be able to make uh, myself. Uh, we will have some announcements at the end, but uh, these ones are a little special to the heart. So uh, if you're a member at Providence, then you know exactly what I'm about to talk about. If you're not, well, then uh, hang on for the ride. So um, so about three weeks ago, a little over three weeks ago, we made uh, a couple of announcements regarding our building. One, we announced that we were, we had already started to, uh, the closing process for, uh, to be able to start building our new church right down the road um, at, on our plot of land. Um, And also that we needed to raise an additional $160,000 in order to get to closing. And so that over three and a half weeks ago, we just said, hey, uh, let's trust God and see what happens. And uh, the truth is, is uh, we at, out of the 160,000 that we needed, we are now sitting at 112,000 that we've raised. Uh, so, th- so we it's super encouraging to see what the Lord has done, um, but we still have a little bit to go. And so, my encouragement would be to you uh, would be over the next couple of weeks, take some time uh, to seek the Lord and see what it would look like for you uh, to possibly give for that as well. Uh, we uh, we really believe uh, in this next season for us as a church, and we really believe that moving forward is the best need for us. So, again. Uh, Thank you so much for those who have been generous. Uh, Thanks be to God for the generosity he has shown to our church. Um, Raising $112,000 in uh, a little over three weeks is nothing short of miraculous and unprecedented. So um, very, very, very grateful for that. So again, uh, seek the Lord and see what it would look like for you to uh, contribute as well. Uh, next, uh, in, starting in January, we're going to be doing what we've been praying about for a really long time as elders uh, over the past couple of months. Uh, we feel like uh, there's no better way to start off a year uh, than a fast as a church, and especially the kind of year that we're going to walk into with 2024, uh, the Best thing that we could do is dedicate an area of our life that we normally depend on something else, and instead depend on Jesus. And so, for us, we we think that that looks like um, a myriad of different things. Eh? Because we don't what we don't want to do is we don't want to shoehorn uh, somebody into a particular type of fast. Instead, we want to we want to simply say, seek the Lord and see what it looks like for you uh, to fast and depend on God. And so if you don't know what fasting means, it means you go without something in order to fill that vacuum, that space with dependence upon the Lord. And so traditionally what that looks like is you giving up some type of food. Sometimes it looks like you, you fasting for a day and then you break the fast the next day or fast for a period of time. We see this throughout the Bible. But for us, we want it to look a little bit different uh, specifically because Throughout our culture, we are being shaped uh, by different things, whether we realize it or not. And for us, that uh, usually means uh, social media, entertainment, things like that, things that are pouring into our lives and shaping our very fabric of our being, regardless of whether or not you like it. It's just what, it's what happens. What you surround yourself with is what you will be shaped by, which is why we have such, uh, such a plea for Christians to entrench themselves into the word. Uh, entrench themselves in prayer, because at the end of the day, you're going to be shaped by those things. So what is in your life will shape you. And so we thought, okay, well, going into potentially, um, at least uh, at bare minimum politically, is going to be one of the most tumultuous years that's going to cause cultural uh, issues, cultural divides. Uh, Sometimes those leak into the church. Sometimes they leak into families. So more than anything else, what we want is for us to start the year off with dependence on the Lord. And so what that looks like for you is um, next week, there's going to be cards in the back of every single seat that are going to give some options for what that look. At least some options. You don't have to choose one of those, but they will give you some ideas of what it would look like for you to fast. Whether that be social media, whether that be entertainment. Because I know for some of for some of us in the room, we have jobs that rely on those things. And so maybe that's not an option for you. And we'll have some additional ones that you could choose from. But we're not gonna we're not gonna ask that you turn those cards in. Uh, we're not gonna. Uh, take attendance on the fast, um, we, we are just going to, we just want to ask that you honor the Lord and walk with us together. So, uh, and lastly, uh, something I'm really excited to announce is on January 7th, uh, we will have an orientation for what we are calling uh, Providence Mercy Ministries. And what that is, is a ministry specifically designed uh, to care for uh, those who are older in our congregation that uh, maybe can't take care of certain things, and the widows in our congregation as well. We we feel a very specific call to care for that. It, rarely in the Bible uh, does uh, God make it very clear what you should care for. He just he, You have a general disposition for caring for God's people, general disposition for caring for those outside of the church, um, but rarely does God look and say, hey, you ought to care for this, and one of the most specific ones are the widow and the orphan and those that are elderly in your family, and so for us, we want to be able to create an avenue where that is a reality for us as a church, where we can get um, get involved in caring for those in our congregation that need it, so um Daryl and Carol Jameson are going to be the ones that are leading this ministry. Uh, We're really excited about what this is going to look like moving forward. So if you would like more information, they don't know this yet, but they're going to be at the kiosk uh, right out here uh, after service, and they would love to talk to you uh, about this ministry. So again, it's called Providence Mercy Ministries. The orientation will be on January 7th, right after church. So, okay. I have been given the uh, wonderful responsibility to preach this morning. Uh, I always get a lot of joy doing it, and so, like Lauren said, we're going to be continuing our Advent series, and and really, the heart behind this series, if I could just take a moment to remind us, is the words that we see, peace, hope, love, and joy, we see them every single year during this time of the year, and they, they flood every single area of our life, whether we like it or not, and whether we actually experience them or not, but there's this overwhelming, almost catechesis of... Hey, during December, you will have peace. You will have hope. You will have love. You will have joy. And that's not really ever defined. We just keep seeing it. And so what happens is they get diluted and they lose their meaning. And so for us, we actually believe that those virtues have deep roots in the Bible. And so we want to infuse them with actual substance, actual meaning. So that way, when somebody says uh, peace on earth or um, hope or joy or love, It actually means something to you. So, that being said, this week, we're going to be talking about peace. And so, if you would, would you please uh, pray for me, and then we will get started. Father God, we come before you this morning, and more than any other time right now, God, we lean on you. There's no other place that we could go, no other well that we could draw from, no other king that we could bow to. And so, God, this morning, we bow our knees before you. We submit underneath your word, and we lean on you in prayer. And so, God, as we approach your word this morning, would you give reverence in our hearts? Would you allow allow it to be in its authoritative spot in our hearts where it ought to be? So, God, we're here. We're here this morning to follow you, to follow you into whatever battle we may face. But we're here to follow you. God, we love you we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to read uh, the text over again just because we covered um, a few announcements. So uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, it says this, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I will bring you good news of great joy that there will be for all the people." Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was uh, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, "Glory to God in the highest, and and earth peace among those with whom He is pleased." So there's a recent uh, over the last couple of months an ongoing discussion happening in our culture Um, and I actually find it to be uh, pretty funny Uh, namely that there's a there's a theory that men in particular think about the Roman Empire two to three times a week Uh, and in fact this was an extremely viral video that went uh, active on social media to the tune of over a billion views in three months It was a wild concept encouraging women to ask the men in their lives how often they think about the Roman Empire. and The the results, honestly, have been astounding. Uh, The results, namely, uh, are that the average man thinks about the Roman Empire two to three times a week. Now, some of the logic lies behind some of the subconscious thoughts of the Roman Empire that exists because it's had such an influence on our culture at some level, behind words that we use, institutions that we have, systems of education, things like that, they have all influenced the way that we do things. So they kind of lean on that logic that, yeah, two to three times a week, they don't even realize that they're thinking about the Roman Empire. Now, I don't know how much of that I buy, but what I can tell you is that I watch Gladiator at least twice a month. It's a fantastic movie. How could you not? Uh, One of the greatest lines ever with Maximus looking at Commodus, the man who took the lives of his family, He looks him in the eyes and says, My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, and loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. And every man muttered that as as I said it right now. Because it is an epic, epic scene. And every single person needs to check their purchase history later, later because there will be a sword in it, I promise. I promise. But the idea that men think about the Roman Empire multiple times a week rests in the idea that the ancient Rome was this wonderful, big, large empire that existed across the world. And the emperor at time certainly uh, would have thought uh, would have thought that this was an incredible thing that people would consider uh, that empire for decades and decades and decades a- a- ago. But. This notion of peace on earth would have come as a great shock to anyone who heard it, namely Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor at the time. And Augustus uh, would have laughed at this idea. Constantly throughout the kingdom, Augustus was praised for inaugurating Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. And this peace era would, would go on to last for over 200 years. And the truth is, is that the death of Julius Caesar, who came before him um, on the Ides of March in 44 BC, brought chaos to the Republic of Rome. Octavian, who would later become Augustus, Octavian, the young adopted son of Caesar, hunted down his father's assassins and defeated the other claimants to the throne, Mark Antony and Marcus Lepidus, securing for himself the leadership of Rome, and so an empire was born from that moment on. Augustus, as he would now be known, would usher in, in an unprecedented era of of prosperity and stability, and the disorder of the previous years, the chaos, the disorder of the previous years would be wiped away. And for years, he would expand the kingdom, defeat enemies, and um, defeat enemies, and set up economic systems that would flourish for years and years and years. So, 27 years into his reign, and Pax Romana in full effect, the idea of instituting, namely world peace, something that already exists would have been laughable to him. In his mind, why do we need to institute world peace? What do you mean someone's coming to bring world peace? I've already established it. I've already set the world in the direction that it needs to go. However, similar to the word love, the word peace has been hijacked and used throughout history in ways that have both, de- uh, both informed at times, but deformed it largely across the board of its true meaning. At a cursory level, I would imagine you're like me, And that this notion of peace seems like a, at least in our current time, seems like a far-fetched one. We're promised world peace, why don't we experience peace in the world? And that could be at a personal level, whether that's uh, lack of financial peace, uh, sickness, losing loved ones. It could be cultural. I mean culturally speaking, I think that we are experiencing some of the worst chaos and disorder that we've ever seen. Whether that be economically, people dividing themselves there, racially, um, at an educational level, you're not smart enough, you're too dumb, things like that. Politically, we're in one of the most divided times that we've ever been in. There's so much chaos. There's no order. Wars feel like they come up every year. There's something new. So selling the idea of peace on earth is a tough one when you think about peace that way as we, as we usually do. You see, when we think of peace, we think of things that usually aren't happening. So for example, we say things such as, this house is so peaceful because it isn't loud and isn't dirty. It's clean and quiet. This person is a peaceful person to be around because they aren't divisive or they aren't mean. Usually calm and relaxed. You'll say things like, I feel at peace about it. I feel at peace about a particular topic or subject because we don't have any further objections about that decision. You'll say, My life is at peace because nothing is currently in a bind. Now, those are certainly aspects of peace that do exist. There's no denying that. However, For us to understand peace merely as tranquility or prosperity or simply defining peace by the things that it isn't ensures not only that we'll miss the true meaning, but it also ensures that we'll never find it. It ensures that we will never experience that peace. You see, even the great Caesar Augustus during the height of Pax Romana didn't truly believe that he had peace. He was a man who lived by fear and constantly had men around him as bodyguards. So he can talk about Pax Romana all he wants, but a man that has an army of people that surrounds him at all times, in all places, in all areas, is not a man that is peaceful. That is a man who's afraid that somebody will take his life. That is a fearful man. That's not a peaceful man. Where there is, a, to understand peace correctly, we need to understand it as an establishment of order, not establishment of tranquility. Tranquility is a result of order. Peace is a result of order. Where there is no order, chaos ensues. We see this from the very beginning. When the world is created, it says the world is without form and void. And then God, with his creative word, provides order to that. When you look in the Bible, most of the time when it starts talking about seas, Uh, The raging seas or the raging waters, it's always pointing to this idea of chaos. And so when you have the world that's created and there's no form, there's no void, it's speaking to the world being chaotic and you have a creative God who comes in and brings order to that disorder. You also have uh, what happens a couple chapters later in Genesis 3. God creates the the world to operate with a very particular rhythm and harmony. Everything's supposed to piece together, work together to cause one another to flourish. It's this rhythmic relationship that happens between all of God's creation until sin comes in. Sin comes into the world and throws the world into chaos. And now, no longer are things working in this rhythm and harmony, but they're working against one another. Man working against creation, man working against man, man working against God. It's all of these forces that once worked together towards a common good of the glory of God, now work against one another to the defamation of God. And this causes, not this effect of sin causes more than just a disorder of creation. You see, this is where Augustus wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong because he did bring a level of order When Julius Caesar died, there was chaos and disorder. The Republic was crazy. And he comes in and he establishes order. It takes a lot of lives to do it, but he establishes order. Chaos is something that can't be left on its own. Order has to come in at some level. But however, there is more than just a disordered creation that happens as a result of sin. Sin brought on a disorder of the soul. It has brought a rift in our relationship with God, and we are most naturally, because of sin, at odds or separated from God if left to our own devices. There is something of a spiritual war that requires a peace treaty that we didn't have before Christ. And this kind of spiritual war can't be remedied by a strong arm or a large army. No financial strategy resolves the chaos, this chaos of the soul. Augustus would have never have understood this concept. And this is the issue: In order for there to be true peace, there has to be true order. Augustus put himself at the top of the hierarchy, equating himself with a God that should be worshipped. and you and I at times will do the same thing, thinking that through effort and strategy we can create peace by simply removing chaos in our lives. We treat this life at times. As our own empire, looking to expand further and further to ensure that more of it is in our control. Because if it's in our control, then we can make sure that no chaos comes about. We take the same approach as Augustus, both gaining ground and also going nowhere. When this happens, we start doing the opposite of bringing order. We actually end up inviting chaos into our lives because when you begin to build your own personal empire of peace with you on the throne, you beckon rebellion and opposition. Anyone and anything is a potential threat to that kingdom of peace. So, setting the scene, when the angels appear and announce in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, when the angels say, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Among those whom he has pleased, they aren't saying that he's gonna come in and set this kingdom order, this economic order, and he's gonna get rid of the Roman army and everything's gonna be peaceful. No, that's what they wanted, but that's not what he's that's not what they're saying. Instead, they're saying, No, the rightful king has actually arrived. Order is now established, the top of the hierarchy is actually in place, the cornerstone has been set. Now everything can be built. Now everything can start. Now true peace can be had because true order is had. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, But now when the newborn king made his appearance, the swaddling band with which he was wrapped up up was the flag, white flag of peace. That manger was the place where the treaty was signed, whereby warfare should be stopped between man's conscience and himself, man's conscience and his God. It was then that day the trumpet blew sheath the sword o man sheath the sword o conscience for god is now at peace with man and man at peace with god do you not feel my brethren that the that the gospel of god is peace to man where else can peace be found but in the message of jesus you see spurgeon knew what the angels did he knew that the king is here And he knew that because this is our reality, we can actually have true peace. The greatest threat of chaos and disorder that exists for us is not financial ruin, it's not family hardship, and it's not having a difficult boss in our lives. No, the greatest chaos and threat to our peace is the gap that existed between God and man because of sin. That is the greatest threat that we have. And when Christ condescended and entered the scene, he began to order what was disordered and bring peace to what was chaotic and bridge a gap between God and man that didn't exist before and couldn't by effort alone. Throughout his ministry, we see Christ coming into the world and taking dominion and authority as he ought to as the king and God of the universe. And if He, and if you're going to have a God that establishes control and establishes order, we see him In his different spheres, taking dominion. Throughout his ministry, we see the God of peace, as Hebrews 13 calls him, establishing his throne by he heals the sick. So in Mark 1 and many other places, we read of him healing the lame and the sick. And in that particular passage, he heals a leper. And why does he do that? He does that because he is the one to properly deal with the curse of sin. And if he can fix the fruit, which was the disease, then he can fix the root, which is sin. The God of peace shows himself by bringing order, by eliminating disease and showing power over it. He establishes throne because he calms disaster. In Mark chapter 4, we read of Jesus sleeping in a boat. The sea begins to rage. Things begin to go into chaos. And they wake Jesus up and he stands up and with but a word calms the sea and it was flat as glass. So Jesus establishes his throne by exercising dominion over creation over disasters the God of peace brings order even amid disorder he cleanses the place of worship so in Matthew 21 Jesus saw that the temples had been co-opted by money changers and those that were selling pigeons for their own gain and instead of letting it go he re-established the temple as a place of reverence and worship by flipping tables and whipping them out as a good man should we see Jesus raise the dead. So he he transverses the physical realm into the metaphysical realm. In John chapter 11, we read of Jesus speaking to a man who had been dead for days. We learn that that man's name was Lazarus. And he rises from the dead, he rises from the grave, and he walks out to much amazement. We see that Jesus has the power over death and not just others' deaths, but his death as well. And one of the most incredible verses that exist one of my favorite chapters in the bible is john chapter 10 and jesus is looking at all those who have gathered around him and he says i have the power over death i'm going to lay my life down and no one's taking it from me and not only that but i'm going to bring my life right back up so jesus not only has the power over death of others but he also has the power over death of his own life and so jesus willingly says i'm going to lay my life down and i'm going to raise my life back up and nobody is intervening. If you kill me, it's because I've let you do it. And when I rise, it's because I wanted to. That's a boss statement. It's incredible. That is Jesus taking dominion over not only life, but also death. And then lastly, Jesus doesn't just. He doesn't just heal the sick. He doesn't just calm disaster. He doesn't just cleanse the place of worship he doesn't just raise the dead but he pays for sin and in Colossians chapter one we read that Jesus makes peace through the blood of the cross we learn that Jesus reconciles all things to himself through his death and Jesus brings the warring parties together to make a lasting eternal shalom and by his death he brings peace he brings order Jesus rescues rebellious people like you and me, and he offers himself on the cross as a suitable payment for you and I. He brings us to God by removing that sin that alienates us, and he reconciles us, bridging a gap that didn't exist. The God of peace then makes peace. So then, if the God of peace has taken the throne, established himself as king, created order, and provided the very means of peace, how then should we think about these things? I have three different points, that I want to share them with you. Point number one, we should receive the peace of God. And so we need to remember that God is at work in the world to make all things new. The, the disorder brought through sin has been remedied through the cross and will be realized at the end of the age. So when you are feeling the effects of disorder, namely disaster, disease, death, pain, hurt, You need to remember that the God of peace is actively working to make all things new. What God does is linked to who God is. God is the God of peace, therefore, He is making all things new to establish that peace. God is a God of rhythm and harmony, and He's working to establish rhythm and harmony in the world so that His children can flourish. We should take comfort. In this truth, even as things on the ground may appear to be unraveling, do not forget that your greatest need throughout history and throughout eternity before you is peace. In our sin, we declare war upon God, and through the cross, Christ makes peace for spiritual rebels like us. If you do not know this God of peace, know that you can today if you are willing to lay down your weapons of warfare and your opposition to him. If you, if, you, if you will turn from sin, turn from rebellion, and turn to him in faith and trust, he will accept you, and you will enjoy this God of peace. Just like Augustus, you will not be able to manufacture this type of peace anywhere else. It doesn't matter how far you expand your empire. It doesn't matter how deep your pockets get. It doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter how logical you are that peace will not come from anywhere but Jesus. That peace will not come from anywhere but the God of peace. And When we trust in Christ, we feel the peace from God because we have peace with God. Point number two. Point number one, we extend the peace, or we receive the peace, and that leads us to point number two, because when we receive it, we also extend it. So you receive the peace of God, and now you extend the peace of God. And when we follow Christ, God makes his people to be peacemakers. We see this in the Beatitudes when Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And even just a quick experiment of reverse engineering that is a phenomenal statement. The sons of God, the, the sons of God will be peacemakers. So those who will be called sons of God will be peacemakers. That's, that's an incredible statement because it, it requires something from us on the back end of not just receiving the peace, but also extending it out to other people. In fact, I'll take it a step further. Isaiah 32 verse 17 says this, and the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. It's an incredible statement. And so here's what he's saying. That means that when we are walking by the spirit, pursuing righteousness, the most natural outworking of this inner reality is a desire to make peace with others. Being called a child of God uh, child of the God of peace means that our general lifestyle ought to bear the same image. In other words, it is impossible in our life as a Christian to be both a faithful follower of Jesus and not be a peacemaker. It's impossible. It is the outworking of it. It's the effect of righteousness. If you're going to Walk faithfully, be obedient, trust God with all of your heart. If that's actually taking place in your heart, you will have no choice but to be a peacemaker. I've been wronged many times throughout my life, both big and small. And so I understand that there are stories in this room that make this easier said than done. And the most difficult part of forgiving others, making that peace, is often the decision to do it. There there have been a lot of times in my life where there have been rifts in relationships between me and another person, whether that be a family member or a friend, even in the church. And those rifts have been completely unnecessary. They were unnecessary because I decided to take a principled stand where I didn't need to. And I want to be clear, sometimes those principled stands are good. They're right. They're rare, but they're right. Sometimes we have to stand and be faithful to God, and that means it's going to create a gap between you and other people. Sometimes that happens. We see this in the Bible. Paul releases Hymenaeus and Alexander out of the church because they're not faithful. In the book of 1 Corinthians, there's a man who's uh, committing sexually immoral sins, and he's unrepentant of it. And Paul says, you need to kick him out of the church and treat him as an unbeliever. And not only that, but don't even have dinner with him. And so sometimes there's a, there's a gap to be had that creates the amount of, the kind of dependence that people need, the devastation that people need in order to lean on God. But those principled stands are very rare. And most of the time when we find ourselves in rifts with other people, it's because we're prideful. And, I, and honestly, I say that to myself. at the end of the day, we have to allow the word of God to guide what we think and what we believe. And if we're going to do that, you would have a very difficult time arguing theologically that someone should not be extended forgiveness, regardless of what they did. Now, some of you are ready to hear that, some of you aren't, and I understand that. I I understand the place you may be in, but you would have a very difficult time arguing that somebody should not be extended forgiveness. Forgiveness is difficult, but it is at the heart of the gospel. Forgiveness at its base level is you choosing to absolve or absorb what some what someone did to you and then out of that you return grace and mercy. And then you no longer keep that as a record of wrong. You no longer hold that against them. That's true forgiveness, and that is the heart of the gospel. Christ absorbed what we did to him in rebellion. He absorbed what we owed, and then out of turn, he gave he gave back what we didn't deserve. He gave us grace and mercy. And I ordered these points in such a way to, to make sense because the truth is, is that you can't really know what it means to extend peace until you've received it. So as we think about this, we have to take a moment to say, okay, I I need to know what it feels like to receive your love, receive your peace, receive your rest that I can find myself in. I need to find the cleft of rock, which is Christ, and rest and hide myself in it, and then extend that grace out to other people. And if I find myself not being able to extend peace and grace to other people, then I have to reverse engineer and say, how am I not receiving it? How am I not seeing myself correctly? Have I put myself on top of the throne where I think I can stand above people? As believers, we are to pursue peace with all people because God has made peace with us. And this is true all the time, but that is especially true during the holidays. And it's not because the holidays are something special. Uh, They just create very natural avenues for us to do this. Very easy pathways. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. And when the Lord Jesus has become your peace, remember there is another thing. Goodwill towards men. Do not try to keep Christmas without goodwill towards men. We ought to try everything we can to remedy, reconcile, make restitution in the relationships in our lives where we can, but especially during the holidays because they have natural pathways of reconciliation that don't exist at other times of the year. As believers, we can no longer hold grudges act vindictively, let things simmer, or otherwise nurture bitterness. If we're walking faithfully with Christ, that cannot coincide with nurturing bitterness. We serve the God of peace, and so we should extend the peace of God. So first we receive the peace of God, then we extend the peace of God, and then lastly, we point number three, we abide in the peace of God. When we abide in the presence of God, The Bible tells us that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds. It's Philippians 4, 7. Sometimes we get convinced that what we need is understanding and knowledge. That when we understand things, we will have peace about it. When we know more, things will be less chaotic. Friends, what we need is not more understanding. It's not more knowledge. It's not an answer to the why. What we need is the presence of God. What we need is an abiding rhythm that places us before the king daily. Sometimes the peace that we need is to find the rest, not in a new strategic plan, but finding our rest in a sovereign king who has everything under control. Because the truth is, is that control is but an illusion. Usually when things are going well in our life, we generally, our default is that we're in control. We default to that. Man, I'm doing everything right. And then things go wrong. And we believe that we're out of control and things are chaotic. And friends, the truth is, is that we were never in control at all. God is a sovereign king who's in, who's in control at all times, in all places, in all areas. And be and, and it's because of that truth that we can actually have peace. Because if it, if it boils down to, things going right, you're in control, things going wrong, you're out of control, then peace is volatile and it's fleeting. You'll never find it. It's a moving target that you'll never hit. But if God is in control at all times and everything is subjected to him, we can have perfect peace. We can have perfect peace. Because then at that point, peace that we feel is not God extending it to us, but it's how we're reacting to what's going on around us. And then at that point, we can say, okay, God, I, I just submit everything to you. I want to find my rest in you. I, want, I don't want to let the beauty of the gospel of peace fade in my eyes. I want to cherish it daily. So how do we find the peace of God outside of receiving it and then extending it while well, we abide in it? We find daily rhythms, daily um, daily opportunities for us to sit before the king. And so my encouragement this morning would be to you would be threefold and we we talked about them already. It would be if this morning while you have the you, you have a really special opportunity this morning. You're here. You don't have to go anywhere. We're about to worship. And you have an opportunity to just sit before the Lord and ask God to make that peace known to your heart, to receive it. And if you're having trouble extending the peace of God, I would really take a very particular moment and just say, God, show me how I need need to see your love. Show me how I'm loved. Show me how you extend that peace to me. Show me how my sin was so great, but you bridged the gap. Show me that. Because I promise you it will be impossible for you not to forgive someone if you understand just how much you've been forgiven of. And then lastly, if it's the rhythm thing, my, I know we're busy. I know a lot of things are going on, but, and some of us may even say, like, I can't afford another 10 minutes to do something. My, I, I would say, okay, I, I agree with that at some level. And that means that 10, minu- that 10 minutes needs to come from somewhere else. Maybe you can't add another 10 minutes on you praying and reading your word very quickly that morning. Maybe you, maybe you can't find another 10 minutes, take it from somewhere else. Because the truth is that you can't afford not to. It's it's that important. So those are my encouragements to you this morning. Receive the peace of God as we worship. Figure out what it looks like to you. Extend that peace of God to those that have that you have troubled relationships with. And abide in the peace of God. Figure out a way that you can sit before the king. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning and there's no other well that we need to draw from. There's no other king that we need to bow before. You are it, Jesus. And so God as we as we sit here this morning, would you would you do the kind and peaceful and loving thing and invade our hearts and show us where we need to receive that peace that can only come from you. Where we need to see uh, how we need to be forgiven. If there's sins that we're not repented of or things that we're not being faithful in, God, show that to us. And God, in turn, give us the courage, give us the boldness to be able to extend that peace and that grace to other people. God, we know that the enemy would love nothing more than to cause division and chaos and disorder. But God, this morning, we run to you who is, who is the God of peace, the God of order, and the God of love. And so God, we ask that you help us bear that image well and faithfully. And God, we, we also ask that you would make it clear to us where we can sit before you daily, where we can meditate on your word day and night as your word says. God, help us to be faithful there. God, I know we're busy. There's a lot of things going on at this time of the year, but we pray that you make it it clear to us where we are not walking with you on a daily basis. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.